Welcome to the return of Church Grammar. Today's episode is brought to you by a special sponsor, a ministry that I have known and respected for a long time, Speak for the Unborn. Speak for the Unborn trains and equips churches to become winsome, gospel-centered, hope-filled voices for life in their communities. If you desire for your church to be more involved in a biblical pro-life ministry that's centered around the gospel hope and love of Christ for abortion-minded individuals, Speak for the Unborn can help. Speak for the Unborn creates uh, holistic pro-life plans for your church, as well as providing training for sidewalk counseling that's winsome, gospel-centered, and compelled by love. Speak for the Unborn's ministry is unique because it works under the governance of the elders of a local church. It's completely customizable to your church and your community. Speak for the Unborn churches are also connected to an entire network of like-minded churches across North America that support, encourage, and pray for one another in pro-life ministry. For more information on how Speak for the Unborn can serve your local church, visit speakfortheunborn.com. That's speakfortheunborn.com. Or send an email to info at speakfortheunborn.com. On today's episode, we have Dr. Thomas Kidd. He is Distinguished Professor of History at Baylor University. And today we talk about a whole range of things. He's a well-known scholar, perhaps a leading scholar in the world on American religious history and evangelicalism. And so we talk about American religious history, the founding fathers, the faith or lack thereof, how America was you know, founded on Christian principles at some level, but where that's true and where that might be exaggerated a little bit. We talk about his new book, Who is an Evangelical? And what the definition of evangelical is historically, dealing with that today, as many people are trying to figure out, do I even want to be called an evangelical anymore based on politics and culture and other things? And so we talk about that. And we talk about what his ideas are on the future of evangelicalism. You know, we learn about the future. We learn about the present from looking at the past. And so we talk through some of that. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with him. As always, we are brought to you by B&H Academic, bhacademic.com to find out about all their new books and textbooks that they have released recently. And you can also check out csbible.com to see our other sponsor, the Christian Standard Bible, an English translation that is faithful to the original languages without sacrificing clarity. And now, here's my conversation with Dr. Kidd. But first, you know him, you love him. No big deal. I have... Tommy Kidd on the line from Baylor University. Tommy, thanks so much for hopping on today. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit first just about your faith journey. So how did you become a Christian, and then how did that lead you into uh, doing scholarship that you're doing now? Well, uh, I grew up in a mainline church environment, and uh, so, you know, was certainly in a Christian context, but uh, didn't really understand uh, the gospel until my late teens. Um had uh, my best friend in high school was a believer, and he got involved with the Navigators uh, at Clemson University, where I went uh, for my undergraduate and master's degrees. And so I ended up getting involved with the Navigators, and uh, my friend took me through an evangelistic study. And I, I mean, I was uh, sort of ripe for the picking. I mean, I, I really was sort of desperately interested by that point in knowing, uh, understanding about. Um, the gospel and why Jesus died and how I could be forgiven and those sort of, I mean, I, I was ready. And so 
um, I accepted Christ uh, at the beginning of my freshman year at Clemson, and so Chrisette sent me on a on a completely different <laughs> path as far as what my uh, college career looked like, and um, was in uh, the Navigators, and then um, over time I was, uh, of course, you know, it's a struggle a lot of parachurch kids have is you know what do you do about church, and yeah. I was going kind of bouncing from one you know, kind of church to another, but over time, uh, was gravitating towards, um, Baptist convictions, um, believers baptism certainly made sense. And as I came to understand it, uh, Baptist polity also made sense. And so that's how I landed, uh, in, in, uh, Baptist circles, but, um, I actually didn't go consistently to a Baptist church until I went to uh, Notre Dame for my PhD. Ironically, I sort of f- fully became Baptist at uh, Catholic, at a Catholic school. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know that that many people have that story, but uh, that that's my story. And so, what were you? Were you always interested in history? Did you think you might teach even before all that happened, or was that sort of a particular type of vocation or calling that you felt after you had really started taking your faith seriously? Um, so I was a, a political science major at Clemson, um, and I was before I became a Christian. I mean, I, I was really, really into politics and even you know volunteering and elections and stuff like that. And um, and so I thought I would go into government and politics, but actually, um, partly through just being a political science major and seeing some of what was involved, and then my own. Uh, spiritual intellectual journey. I, I kind of got a, a little bit disillusioned about politics. Um, I think it was actually taking a class on the Arab-Israeli conflict. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> I just don't know if politics can really help very much, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, with these perennial conflicts and besetting difficulties that human beings have. And so um, I was a history minor and found myself even when I was writing my senior thesis at Clemson, that I, I really was uh, gravitating more and more towards history. And I had uh, a couple of just great uh, professors, um, one of whom was a believer, um, who sort of said, you know, I, I think you're kind of you know, leaning towards history, thinking like a historian here. Have you ever thought about doing graduate work and specifically in, in history? Um, and I, I really didn't know much about what that was about. I mean, um, I, you know, public university and, um, you know, my parents are uh, certainly college educated people, but, but, you know, didn't necessarily encourage me towards graduate school. And mm-hmm. uh, so I just decided to do a, um, a master's degree in history at Clemson and just stuck around Clemson for that. And uh, that was really kind of my first introduction to what the professional study of history entailed and um, started reading about um, the Puritans in colonial New England in particular and just thought this is the most interesting thing <laughs> I've ever read about in my life. And, and so that, that started to give some shape to uh, what it would look like for me to go and do a, a doctorate. And um, I, you know, did the master's degree, found that I was more interested than ever, and so uh, applied around and, and was able to get into Notre Dame. Um, so that's where I went. And I worked with George Marsden, who's you know, one of the most important uh, Christian historians, Christian mm-hmm. scholars of 
of our time. So uh, that that was he was just an incredible uh, mentor and example to me, and wonderful to be able to go to Notre Dame and uh, study with him. And was studying with him when you got interested in the history of evangelicalism and the Great Awakening and some of those kind of things. Or did you go there because well, you were already interested in those things? Like like most historians, I mean, um, I had a lot of interests and in a lot of things that I imagined I could study. Um, and so I um, focused in on uh, colonial New England and what uh, happened between basically the, the end of Puritanism and the beginning of the Great Awakening about a... 50-year stretch there between about 1690 and 1740 that um, historians had long realized was the most under, understudied period mm. of uh, colonial New England's history. And colonial New England is the most studied of, of all the uh, colonial regions. Um, and of course, people have studied the Salem witchcraft trials in 1692, and they had studied the Great Awakening. But a lot of that stuff in between there was, it was kind of um, unknown. And so I, I basically took up the question of kind of what happened to the Puritans and when did they stop being Puritans and what did they become after they were Puritans? And then what did that have to do with the coming of the Great Awakening? Uh, and that became my first book, which is now sort of a cult classic. <laughs> <laughs> Only a few really dedicated readers have, have looked at that. It's called The, Pur- the Protestant Interest in New England After Puritanism. Um, but that book ends, the epilogue is about the coming of uh, Whitfield to uh, New England. And so that kind of transitioned into my my second book, which was my big book on the, the Great Awakening itself. And so what did you find in there that you thought contributed to sort of the historical knowledge of that time that had been underrepresented? What was kind of the, the big idea that you came out with? Well, um, in a nutshell, I, I argued that... Um, Massachusetts, as part of the Glorious Revolution, 1688 and 89, um, had been had been given a new charter, and they were required to practice religious toleration of other Protestants. Um, the Puritans were, and so uh, and and they also entered a, a couple of generations of imperial war against, usually against uh, France, fighting on Britain's side against France. And those circumstances made it uh, difficult for them to really continue as Puritans anymore because Puritans are the sort of people who fight other Protestants over <laughs> the differences in, like, ecclesiology and stuff. Yeah, right. Like different, you know, blood feuds about the difference between Congregationalists and Presbyterians, for instance. Um, and that just didn't really work anymore in condition of toleration and also – when you feel like your existence as a society is threatened by Catholics um, because they were always afraid of being taken over by Catholic France. Mm -hmm. And so um, they began referring to themselves as the Protestant interest. In fact, they much more commonly called themselves the Protestant interest than the Puritans had ever called themselves Puritans. I mean, Puritan was a term of insult, so they usually didn't say, I am a Puritan. Uh, where the people affiliated with the Protestant interest use that term all the time. And by it, they understood that they were part of a broad transatlantic Protestant British anti-Catholic network that was sort of fighting for survival on the world stage. Um, and among other things, it, it created a kind of crisis mentality 
about, you know, our very existence as Protestants is is in jeopardy from uh, the menace of Catholic power, especially in, in France and Spain. And uh, that certainly gave an edge to uh, the revival movements that started to come out in the 1730s and, and 40s. And you, you routinely see, for instance, Whitfield referring to the Catholic threat in his um, revival preaching. Yeah, so they were they were not just uh, evangelistic on theological or ecclesiological grounds, but on literal survival in some sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they and I mean, evangelicals have often had this kind of mentality. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not saying it, it's at the core of what makes people evangelical, but but uh, I mean, there was a very smooth uh, connection between evangelicalism and say anti-communism in the 1950s. I mean, a lot of Billy Graham's early preaching is about the the communist menace. And I I think there's a kind of historical parallel between that kind of preaching and the anti-Catholic preaching of the 1730s and 40s. And is that, do you think, sort of an underlying, maybe overlooked reason why evangelicals got so involved in conservative politics as the, the 20th century went on? Yeah, I do. I do. And I, I talk about that in my, my book on evangelicals it's, that's coming out um, is, uh, you know, that, that really we tend to think about um, the moral majority uh, as kind of the beginning of the new Christian right. But I, it, it's, um, it's better to date it at least to um, the 1950s mm-hmm. and you know, the anti-communist politics of, of the uh, 1950s. And I mean, the, you know, Communism, Soviet communism, Chinese communism was, um, in principle, atheistic and very aggressively so. So it's, I mean, I'm not saying there's nothing for them to be concerned about. Um, and uh, imperial and very aggressive on the world stage, and it was a kind of perfect foil uh, for the you know Billy Graham and and those associated with him. Hmm. And it's why Graham. Uh, tragically in some ways became so closely associated with Richard Nixon, um, which he later looked back on as one of the greatest mistakes of his career. But but Nixon, who was not a particularly devout person, was uh, one of the you know most vociferous uh, anti-communist Republicans in the 1950s and 60s. And so that, that set the stage for this uh, cooperation between Graham and Nixon. So you wrote this uh, two-volume American history with B&H Academic, and you know one of the big questions that I think a lot of people wrestle with, or there's a lot of arguments about, is the faith of the founding fathers. So yeah. some people want to say, and maybe it's for political gain, hey, they were all Christians, and we should recover their faith and what they wanted. But also there's a lot of history showing that there was some deism and some non-Christian elements. So how do you separate fact from fiction, and what would you say are some fact and fiction about that timeline and the faith of our founding fathers? Right. It's it's maybe the most debated uh, historical question in American politics today, maybe along with slavery, um, is, you know, to what extent was America founded as a Christian nation? And I think one of the ways that that discussion uh, plays out in kind of unhelpful ways is it gets very focused on the faith of five or six of the founding best known founding fathers. You know, you know who they are: Jefferson, Adams, Adams, Madison, Washington, and, and so forth. Um, and I'm interested in that too. I mean, I've done a book on Ben Franklin's 
faith uh, or lack thereof. Uh, and my my current book project that I'm writing right now is a, a book on Thomas Jefferson that is certainly concerned with uh, his religious views as well. Um, but the problem uh, is that if everything hinges on whether those five or six people were believers or not, then um, uh, it, it puts a lot of pressure on the kind of Christian America advocates to insist, mm-hmm. in, in spite of evidence to the contrary, that they were all uh, Christians or even uh, evangelicals and born again. Um, and that is, you know, it's it's decidedly inconvenient for that line of thinking that, for instance, Franklin uh, calls himself a deist, right? So that's how we know Franklin was a deist, <laughs> as he says he was a deist in his autobiography. Um, you know, and, and Jefferson produces a private edition of the Gospels with the resurrection taken out, um, right, yeah. which I would think to any traditional Christian is just totally unacceptable. Um, and so, you know, there's attempts to sort of explain away the skepticism of Jefferson and Franklin, and so, but, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't work, and there's no professional historians who, you know, go along with that. And, and, and I think even more problematically for those of us like, like me who, I mean, I do think that, that faith and Christianity play an important role in the American founding. But it, it's it's not contingent on the faith of those five or six founders. It's the more general influence mm. that Christian ideas, uh, Judeo-Christian, if you want to use that term, uh, ideas played on the founding, in the sense that there was very broad uh, assent to the idea that uh, human beings are not naturally good among the founders. Um, regardless of what their personal beliefs were about the divinity of Christ or the divi- or, or the Trinity or whatever, uh, there there was a broadly Christian worldview about the created order, about uh, the working of providence in human history, um, and so you know you take somebody like Jefferson, who doesn't believe in the Trinity. Uh, he doesn't believe in the divinity of Christ. He doesn't believe in the resurrection. So, I mean, there's no way you can consider him a traditional Christian. But at the same time, um, he is living in this broadly Christian context, and he takes a lot of things from Christianity for granted. Uh, so when he says that all men are created equal and they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, um, he he is expressing something both that he believes personally— because it's like, what you know, where else would our rights come from but from God because we're mm-hmm. created? Um, Jefferson believes that, um, uh, unlike what some secularists would tell you. Um, and he's also reflecting the almost unanimous uh, view of all Americans in 1776. And so that's the way to get at, I think, the, the effect that faith has on the founding— I mean, you can also look at the thousands and thousands of people who participated in the Patriot Movement who were converted in the Great Awakening. It's just that most of those people are not Tier 1A founding fathers. Um, So Hmm. I think my concern about the whole discussion is just that it gets disproportionately focused on the personal faith of these five or six people as if they represent everything about the founding in America in 1776. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like, who would you say 
as you as you're saying, there were some that were more maybe more traditional Christians. You know, Witherspoon, maybe some of those. Who are some that we have heard of or haven't heard of who had a more direct traditional Orthodox Christian influence on early America? Uh, one sir is John Witherspoon, president of Princeton, only active clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence. Um, another is Patrick Henry, uh, who I did a biography of in uh, 2011. And one of the reasons why I wanted to work on Patrick Henry is because I thought he's maybe the most prominent of the founding fathers who uh, you know, undoubtedly is a traditional Christian and deeply influenced mm. by uh, the Great Awakening. He went to Samuel Davies' revival meetings when, when he was a boy uh, in Virginia. Um, others would include Roger Sherman of Connecticut, who was an evangelical and a Calvinist, uh, and uh, arguably um, one of the most important uh, of the lesser-known Founding Fathers, because he, uh, I think, was the only one of the Founding Fathers to sign the Declaration of Independence, Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution. Um, and so he was just there for all the political organizing of the time. Uh, John Jay, uh, first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and also one of the early um, presidents of the American Bible Society. Uh, same for Elias Boudinot of New Jersey, who's an evangelical and a Calvinist uh, and one of the early presidents of the American Bible Society, who also uh, wrote a lot about eschatology, um, believe it or not. Uh, it, I think he was the head of the U.S. Mint. Uh, so, I mean, there's... You know, they're, they're def it's not hard to find traditional Christians. Uh, it's just that, uh, you know, Washington and Madison and Hamilton tend to be kind of reticent about their own faith. Uh, Adams, um, certainly in later life, is a Unitarian. Uh, Jefferson's a Unitarian. Um, Franklin is, is kind of a Unitarian. So, so, you know, we... You know, when we just focus on those five or six, I think you get a skewed picture of what the broader patterns of faith were among people involved in the mm -hmm. Patriot movement. And so I, you know, I started teaching at a, a Christian university at Cedarville University, and a lot of my history colleagues talk about how, you know, when they get a textbook for American history, at best, it's going to cover some of Christian influence on American history. At worst, it might be dishonest or negligent of the Christian role in American history. So in your two-volume textbook, I think a lot of Christian schools are obviously going to be really excited about it with a confessional Christian historian doing the work. But how have you tried to find the balance between you know, not letting your Christian faith influence it too much, which maybe, maybe you're not too concerned about that, uh, versus you know, really trying to be educational and trying to be unbiased and trying to get the students what they need to learn, even with the Christian bent in there, for lack of a better word. Right. Well, I mean, that was one of the reasons why I was interested in doing the, the textbook is because of that sense that um, the conventional textbooks, the secular textbooks, um, and even secular historians have, have realized this, that uh, there tends to be coverage of religion in the founding of the colonies, uh, because it's hard to avoid it with, you know, the founding of New England and, and uh, Pennsylvania and <laughs> right. colonies like that. Um, first and Second Great Awakening, uh, maybe the moral reform movements, uh, temperance and so forth. And um, But then, one, you know, once you get to 
reconstruction and and head into 20th century American history, it really only pops up every once in a while, maybe the Scopes trial, uh, maybe a little bit about the fundamentalist modernist controversy as relates to the Scopes trial, and then um, the you know the moral majority and and uh, 9/11 you know dealing with um, Islamic fundamentalism, um, but that that's about it as far as the role of any kind of religion um, in, in any serious way, and so I just wanted to sustain uh, the coverage of religion, mostly Christianity, of course. Um, and, and of course, I have a particular interest in the fate of evangelicalism uh, right on through the 20th century. And so um, I, I wanted to, to write something that, uh, you know, both in my, my earlier work has, has always tried to do this as well. I mean, I don't try to paint some rosy picture of that religion is always doing good things in American history. Um, so uh, there's some negative coverage too. I mean, you know, just the role that that Christian Christian ideas play in uh, imperialism of various kinds, and uh, you know, people saying that you know God blesses the you know inevitable expansion of America not only to the Pacific Ocean but around the world mm-hmm. and the exercise of American power around the world. Often those those kind of things and war uh, get baptized with Christian ideals when sometimes I, I think they definitely should be kept separate. Um, so I, I don't want to go to the other extreme, which I think some uh, Christian America textbooks have, have tended to do, which is to say, you know, America's great and Christianity is great and it's always great and it's always a good influence. <laughs> um, but, but I mean, I certainly begin with the assumption that when Christians say that they're acting on their faith, that they that they really mean it, and it doesn't, it's not just a mask for some you know political or economic power agenda. And I mean, I, I definitely tend to take a sympathetic view of uh, people like Billy Graham, and uh, you, you know, as concerned as I am, as I said before, about Graham's relationship with people like Nixon. But uh, you know, those ongoing revival movements uh, receive a lot of coverage and sympathetic treatment. Um, and I even uh, do give some attention to things like the conservative resurgence, uh, because I think it's one of the most important religious stories of the late 20th century, uh, but also because I'm writing for B&H Academic. I mean, I think it, it warrants uh, a little bit of extra coverage to uh, Baptist topics. So mm-hmm. uh, so that's what I was trying to do. And so I, I hope that the uh, people who use the book will find it that, you know, it, it covers the topics that basically any history course would expect to be covered, you know, the, the War of 1812 and the, uh, you know, World War II and the Vietnam War and presidential elections yeah. and the Great Depression and all those sorts of things that you're going to cover in any normal uh, history course, but it also gives that kind of sustained attention to religion. Okay, and so in your new book, we alluded to it a little bit earlier, too, who is an evangelical with, it's with Yale, is that right? That's right. And so in this book, are you are you trying to come up with a definition for what an evangelical is? Are you just trying to look at the historical scope of the breadth of it? Or what were you trying to do with this book? Well, I was trying to enter this, uh, what I see as a, as a real problem right now in American 
culture and media about the use of the term evangelical, which which seems often in media discussions uh, to mean sort of white Republicans who consider themselves to be religious, um, which mm-hmm. is a lousy <laughs> definition of of what an evangelical is. Uh, you know, no, obviously there are a lot of white evangelicals and there are a lot of white evangelicals that vote Republican. Um, but I think anybody with, with a, a modicum of historical understanding of what evangelicalism is would not start with a contemporary political orientation uh, and ethnic orientation to define what or who an evangelical is. So part of what I'm trying to do is to show, uh, you, you know, and specialists in evangelicalism would not be surprised by some of the story that I'm trying to tell, but I'm, I'm writing it for people who are interested in the, sort of the current crisis of evangelical identity in America uh, and people who are interested in evangelicals' connections to politics, um, and, and sh- to show that there really was a, a tangible, well-defined, spiritually-oriented evangelical movement that was birthed in some ways, at the beginning of Christianity, I mean, that that's certainly how evangelicals like me would, would see it, but that it, it really becomes crystallized in a modern form in the First Great Awakening uh, and the the preaching of people like George Whitfield. And I do offer uh, a, a definition. I mean, there, there are, of course, a number of definitions out there about uh, what an evangelical is, but... Um, the, to me, it's it's there's really three essential uh, attributes since the 1740s. Uh, one is conversionism um, or having a born again experience. Another is a, you know, devotion to the Bible as the infallible Word of God, and then the felt presence of God in your life, either you know walking with with or in the Holy Spirit, or uh, you know being led by Jesus, you know, Jesus living in your heart, that that sort of thing. So that was about as simple as I could make it. Uh, conversionism, biblicism, and felt presence of God uh, are, are what seemed to me to be the the hallmarks spiritually of what a evangelical is, and that the political alignments of evangelicals have have changed a lot over time and that they've depended a lot on people's uh, ethnicity and sometimes class uh, but that th- those political alignments are a lot more transitory and ephemeral than the spiritual commitments and practices of evangelicals for the past 250 years yeah, and so I noticed you know there's the obviously the famous Bebbington quadrilateral and yours is a yeah. little bit different than that. You don't have the activism or the crucicentrism, the Christ-centeredness, quote-unquote, the way he would define it. So why did you see a little bit of a distinction there from what people tend to think of as the definition? Yeah, and, uh, you know, Bevington and I are really, really close friends and have had a number of discussions about this. Um, I, I mean, I think his definition is great and has been, you know, really serviceable uh, as far as it goes, um, the, you'll notice that there's some overlap, uh, biblicism and conversionism. Right. And the reason why I keep those is because I do think those really are uh, evangelical distinctives. Now, I mean, obviously, there are other kinds of Christians who 
profess an attachment to the Bible, but not not really the way that evangelicals do. Um, uh, and, and, and certainly when you contrast them with Catholics, uh, with mainliners, there's kind of a different approach in both cases to the Bible. And, and for sure, conversionism, um, you know, and, and how much evangelicals have made of the born-again experience is, is starkly different from uh, lots of other kinds of Christians. Uh, I, I really think um, that activism and cruciocentrism don't really set uh, evangelicals apart from other kinds of Christians. I mean, there are Christians mm. who would who would say that um, that they don't really believe in activism, but I, I think it's more the case that devout Catholics or devout mainliners or devout Orthodox, uh, you know, m- maybe even, uh, and you could mention others, um, have a different kind of activism. But it's not that they're passive about their faith. I mean, they act on their faith. I mean, and I, I really don't think in the major Christian groups that you would find many people who say you shouldn't act on your faith. So I, mm-hmm. I don't, I, I don't really see. Now, I mean, we could have an argument about whether evangelicals actually tend to act more often on their faith, but I don't. That to me would be really hard to demonstrate, like, you know, numerically, like this percentage of evangelicals act on their faith, or this percentage of lower percentage of mainliners. I, you know, that that's tough to, especially with with all the seeming evangelical nominalism we have now, and especially in the South, um, and then crucialism again. I mean, I, I don't. I, I, Catholics seem to be crucialcentric in their way. Um, is the cross seems to be highly central to Catholic visual culture. Um, so I, I just think it's a different kind of centrality of the cross. Um, but, but I think biblicism and, and conversionism are ones that you really uh, can sink your teeth into as, as evangelical distinctives. And then I think one, one thing that David misses, David Bevington misses in his quadrilateral, is that uh, felt experience of God, the felt presence of God. And I, I think that comes out really clearly in the First Great Awakening. I mean, if, if you had asked George Whitfield what was different for him about, about his converted life, he would have told, I know he would have told you the very first thing was his uh, leading uh, by the Holy Spirit. Um, and mm-hmm. that when he was a nominal Anglican, he did not know the Holy Spirit, and that after his conversion, he did. Um, and he talks about it all the time, especially right after his conversion. Um, and, and, and so Whitfield there, I think, becomes representative of what I think is the distinctive, distinctive experience of being an evangelical. And to me, I also think this is experience of biblical Christianity which is that you know God, right? <laughs> you, I mean, and, and that we, we are even comfortable with talking about um, the, the Spirit or Christ, however, you know, you, you tend to talk about this, leading me to do things and, and confirming things to me by His Word. Um, and there, there's that tangible presence that I don't think most other kinds of Christians are comfortable talking about those sorts of things for the most part. Um, and so, so I, I felt like that was a, 
a dynamic of what's different in the 1730s and 40s when evangelicalism is born, and it's that felt presence of God. To them, usually, they would talk about mostly through the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and that makes me think, too, there's, on the one hand, you're being a little bit more inclusive of other Christian groups saying, hey, evangelicals aren't the only ones that care about XYZ, while also showing some clear definitions. But it also makes me think, at what level have evangelicals, because of our prominence in, in America in the last 50 years, 100 years or so, how have we influenced these other groups who maybe love the Bible or have the felt presence more like a lot of early evangelicals did because of our influence? Do you think there's any connection there? Uh, for sure. I, I do think that there's a strong evangelical influence. I mean, um, not least in uh, worship styles. Um, and, and I mm -hmm. think, you know, even in a lot of mainline churches and Catholic churches, uh, you, you starting in the 1960s, um, partly because of the charismatic renewal movement. And I do talk about the charismatic, uh, you know, relationship with evangelicalism, which is controversial, but there's a lot of overlap and a lot of influence, including on people like Billy Graham. Um, and, and so I think if you, if you go to uh, a lot of mainline and even Catholic churches today, um, you can see uh, influences in worship styles that go back at least to, um, you, you know, new kinds of Christian worship styles that start coming out in the 1960s and, and 70s, which when they first came out were very controversial um, and marginalized, but now have become sort of the dominant American uh, Christian worship style. And so, um, and, and it does... Uh, have a lot of discussion in that in those worship songs and so forth about God's presence uh, in your life, if 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 not these these other themes. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think there's a heavy influence that is is predictable in a way, but just because uh, over the past fifty or sixty years uh, there has been um, especially charismatic growth in, in America. Evangelicals have sort of stayed steady roughly in numbers, while the mainliners in particular have seen massive declines. Uh, and Catholics mm -hmm. would see the same declines, too, if it wasn't for Hispanic immigration. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think just because of the sheer number power of, of evangelicals in America today, which is, a, is both a blessing and a curse, uh, you you see the way that evangelical faith and style has almost become the normative kind of Christian style, especially in worship, maybe some in preaching too, but especially in worship styles for sure. Okay, final question, and maybe the most important one that we've talked about so far. As an historian, obviously, you're going to view the world today and, and the future based on the past at some level, right? So in what ways can we learn from our evangelical, our Christian history to make it through the current cultural climate they're in that you've expressed concern about with politics and, and other things? And then how do we look to the future to be able to implement some of those things to try to avoid some of the pitfalls we've maybe fallen into in the last hundred years or so? Well, I, I, one of the differences to me um, is that uh, the the early evangelicals, uh, it would never have even occurred 
to them to seek uh, political power uh, in, in the way that many evangelicals do today um, because they were just such a small minority, um, tiny minority in the 1730s and 40s of, uh, of course, virtually all Americans in, in the 17, all white Americans in the 1730s and 40s would have professed to be Christian, uh, but only a very small number of those five or 10 percent by, you know, 1750 would have professed to be evangelical. And so they're, uh, I, I think they, because they're that kind of cultural minority um, and because of the excitement of the Great Awakening, um, they really were, I think, much more laser focused on the gospel um, and on planting churches than uh, a lot of evangelicals are today. And uh, they got, uh, evangelicals got uh, a taste of political power um, starting in the 1950s um, with, with Billy Graham and, and other leading evangelicals' relationship with figures in the, in the Republican Party, uh, and then with the election of Jimmy Carter, uh, a, a kind of different sort of evangelical, but he certainly considered himself an evangelical. Carter you know, even gets elected president, um, you know, maybe, maybe the first evangelical president in American history. Uh, and then, of course, the the coalition that elects Reagan, you know, gets this kind of vision for, hey, you know, we we could really wield some serious political power. And when you're uh, mm-hmm. courted by the White House, and so I mean, it's it's tantalizing. Um, and and I don't want I don't want to you know denigrate that. I mean, it's 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 really a tantalizing thing to have access to the sort of political power that it seemed like evangelicals could wield. Um, in the 1980s, but it risks evangelicalism becoming, um, at least in public perception, a fundamentally uh, political movement, and it risks diluting uh, the original purposes of the movement and getting evangelicals uh, distracted into more uh, worldly concerns. And then it also, I think, risks um, putting your hope in people who are certainly not evangelicals, but maybe not even Christians, uh, to do the work of your movement for you, um, and that—that's mm-hmm. really a terrible risk. And, and I mean, it's nothing new with the past forty or fifty years of evangelicals and and politics. Other versions of this have happened before to different Christian groups, but it's a perennial risk, I think, when you think you might be able to wield some serious political power. Um, it's easy to start confusing that with the progress of the kingdom of God. But I, I think, especially as Baptists, I think we better keep those two things very clearly separate. Well, I think that's a really good challenge to finish on. So, Tommy, thanks. I always enjoy interacting with you. I always enjoy listening to you and reading you. So thanks for taking a few minutes for the podcast today. Thank you very much.